So for those of you who are parents who have raised kids or are in the process of that, you will probably be able to remember back that there's an age when kids begin to ask questions to their mom and dad and that we are like this great place of wisdom that they ask us questions and we have answers. You with me on this so far? And if you haven't, don't worry. You've probably asked them and now don't believe anymore, but whatever they say. But when the kids are little, they ask things. And we all have those opportunities to be the wise sage to our children, don't we? So I remember my kids would ask all sorts of questions. And I, I don't want to brag, but I frequently had great responses. And, uh, and there was one, well, I do want to brag. I shouldn't lie. But uh, so one of them that we still talk about is when one of my children asked, they saw something, and I wish, I can't even remember what it was, but it was something you could buy, and they saw how much it cost. They said, why does this cost so much, Dad? Now, if your kids asked you why something costs so much, think about what you might tell them. Think of the wisdom you would give them. Things like, oh, well, it costs a lot because this many people work on it. They have to be paid for it. The resources used cost this much. Like, you think of all the reasons something costs a lot, right? And I bypassed all of that. And I just said, you know why it costs a lot? Because it's expensive. <laughs> hmm? The wisdom of a father that doesn't help anyone. And, and let's be honest, kids ask lots of questions, don't they, that just throw us off our game? I, I started looking this past week at questions from other parents. And <laughs> one little boy asked his dad why the spider always moves away when he farts. <laughs> what an interesting question. Now, sadly, after I read it, I wanted to consider that. Instead of moving past it, I just went, well, why does a spider move away? You know, do they have olfactory senses? Is it the wind? This is sad what happens to me. Another, another uh, dad told the story of him going into a party store to get some beer, and his daughter was with him. He put the case of beer on it, and the price came up, and the daughter was immediately shocked and said, Dad, why would you buy that little beard when you could buy so much more candy? Great question. Isn't it? It is. I mean, kids ask really unique questions. And then they ask questions sometimes that throw us like, hey, mom, dad, where do babies come from? Have you had this one before when your kids are little? And you're like, um, let me tell you more about that later. And parents go away. One man individually was telling a story where uh, he went away and worked up all the things he thought he had to, began to explain it to his, his child, and then said, does that help? And they said, that wasn't really what I wanted to know. I meant, where do we come from? Like, why are we here? He answered the wrong question, didn't even get it. And as kids get older, they, they don't lie, they see things and they wonder. And the questions get deeper and they get more significant. And in the life of the church, sometimes when our kids ask faith questions, we really get tongue-tied with what to do. They can ask questions that are hard and powerful, like, why did my brother pass away? Why did dad divorce mom? Why are we moving? What did we lose out on here? Why are people that are supposed to be Christians so angry and mean? Why, 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 why? And the interesting thing that I've discovered that many of us do is even when there's a place of doubt or question, we typically recite back, you just have to have faith. We believe. We have faith. And, and faith is a great thing. I'm not trying to dismiss that. But what I want to have us engage in today is, guess what? There's times where we don't know how to answer and we're at a loss to that things are confusing and difficult, and they don't always match up. And really, this series we've been in on the seven words of Jesus takes us to the center of this because we see Jesus' heartache and struggle in the midst of all that's going on through his death, his suffering, his crucifixion. And so where we're entering into in this series is a place that questions aren't always easily answered, and it makes us 
sit in difficulty instead of give a simple, just have faith, just believe, dismiss what's going on. And I want us to engage today in this, what we have is now the fourth word of Jesus. He's on the cross, and I told you this in the other weeks, we've talked about it each week, but there are four accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels because it's the centering, it's the good news, it's the, what we believe about God becoming flesh. And what we said was a major part of the focus of each of these four accounts is the final week of Jesus' life and especially his crucifixion. In other words, the scriptures don't shy away and say you must have faith. The scriptures show us right into the very heart and struggle and pain and suffering that doesn't make sense and in a sense is unanswerable. And so with that, we want to engage in Jesus' words in this fourth week. We're in Mark's account, and when Mark gives the account, he focuses on something that happens just before Jesus' words. He says, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Now, I want to stop just for a minute to consider this with us together in the picture Mark is painting. Because this picture of darkness, first of all, it's not like there was an eclipse. We are very clear on when the full moon would have been and how that wouldn't be possible. So I don't want you to write it off as a, hey, it was just a physical thing that happened. This makes no sense. It's supernatural. The claim is basically darkness happened for three hours. Things got really bleak and dark. And it's an image for us in the physical world of what happens. And it's not alone. It has precedent. Mark is helping us see something that going all the way back to the Exodus, there's a time when it becomes dark in Egypt as God's wanting to free the Israelites and there's an image in the midst of this where darkness and despair overcome them. We see three days again and again and three hours as a metaphor. God uses an image of the very death and suffering that goes on. Jonah's in the belly of a whale for three days. And so these three hours of darkness, I want you to consider it like a wave of difficulty coming over. Let, go back to the night before, even before this, when Jesus is in a place called Gethsemane, and he knows he's about to go through all this misery and suffering, and he sits before the Father by himself, crying out, if there's any way to take this from me, but not my will, but yours. He surrenders in it. And it says he's in so much anguish that he cries tears of blood, wave of despair and ache come over him. And this is the same picture Mark is giving right now. It's another wave of difficulty and despair. And at the close of this, at this final statement, at three in the afternoon, it says, Jesus cries out. And he cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And then it gives us the translation, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? The God of the universe, the God coming in the flesh is now in despair. What does this mean for us? Do we just say, hey, just have faith? Just have faith. Is it a simple answer? What are we to learn from Jesus' very time on the cross? And there's more to learn. I want to first approach this as Jesus, being both fully human and fully God, comes in humanity to show us a new way from what Adam has lived, a way in a new way of living. And this despair is part of it. But to do it, I want to take you back, and then we'll look at Jesus as Savior and what that means beyond it for us to connect to. What is for us in this? Well, this is Jesus quoting a psalm. It's Psalm 22. And so I want to give you the broader image of the psalm and just see what was going on for Jesus as he's citing this. It's a rabbinic 
basically a rabbinic tradition and practice to give a verse, meaning we know what more is going on. But it's also at his heart. So here's the, here's the passage. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? In other words, where are you? God the Son in his suffering doesn't know where God the Father is and his heart is broken and he is struggling and aching. Can you hear how you, that's not a simple answer to that? And I want you to see, we'll just look at a little bit of this and we'll talk about more the pattern that goes because you hear the turmoil in the psalmist and it is an image of Jesus as well. So he continues, hey, my God, I cry out by day, but you're not answering. I cry out by night, but I find no rest. But by the way, I want to be really clear on this. Some people teach that God the Father had to look away because Jesus is carrying this sin and God can't look at him. And that, that, there's nowhere in Scripture we get that. What I want to pose for you, even from these words, is that it's not that God the Father's not there. It's that God the Father is silent. In other words, I think you're here, but you're not saying anything. Why aren't you answering why aren't you telling me anything? That's a powerful heartache, isn't it? Now, he goes back and forth. Then he, he, he still gives hope in it. You know what? You're, yet you're enthroned as the Holy One of Israel. You're the one Israel praises. There's this tumult going on for the psalmist. And it's wild because it continues. I won't read the whole text, but I want you just to hear kind of how it goes back and forth. So the psalmist continues and he says, hey, you saved our ancestors. Listen, you answered them. But for me, I am a worm. I'm a scorned man. And then he even gives a quote, let the Lord rescue him, let the Lord deliver him, since he delights in him. By the way, those are the very kinds of words that are said to Jesus on the cross. This is both a psalm and it's a prophetic psalm, meaning the psalmist had an insight as to what the Messiah would go through. But do you hear the back and forth? Oh, wait, you saved people before me. I saw you move in the past, but God... They're mocking me and you're not here. Psalmist goes on, listen, I've been worshiping you and following you since I was born. I've trusted you since my birth. And then he goes on, listen, I need you here because this is like prey. They're coming after me to devour me. What I want you to hear is God gave Israel psalms to give them language for life. Language of the psalm is, God, you're silent and I don't get it. My... My story and other people's story tells me you're good, but right now I'm not seeing it. There is a chasm here. And what I want to tell you is not only should that be comforting to us, it should be a picture for us that guess what? It is a part of our story to hit a wall when we don't hear God. That's what we would describe this as. It's literally hitting a wall. It's literally going... I don't know a way through this. I can't just say, you just have to have faith. I can't just say, well, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Because my life is showing this despair and confusion. And in case you don't know, the Psalms are meant to be a hymn book, meaning these are the songs that Israel sang. We don't sing songs like this very often, do we? Hey, God, where are you? My life sucks. This is great for them. I'm going to die. Would you please help me? I mean, that doesn't sound like a song we sing, does it? Probably wouldn't sing that melody anyway. I know it was lame and pathetic, but that's where I went. But I think oftentimes we have a misunderstanding that the Christian life 
should always be easy and fun. And when it's not good, we assume it means we're doing something wrong. When life's good, God is blessing. When life's not good, God is against us. That is not true. And what I'm telling you is every Christian, this is normative, not only do we hit a wall, we hit a time when God is silent. Maybe we've had experiences before, but we hit a season or a time when we can't hear him and we don't know where he is. You might say it this way, our circumstance doesn't match who we believe God is. Our faith isn't working. There's a famous book that was written some years ago by John of the Cross called The Dark Night of the Soul. And it's an image of when there's a chasm between who we think God is and how we see him or don't hear him. And it brings us to difficulty. And I want to start there today because one of my deepest aches is that often in the church today, we think that God must always be there. It must always go well. And so when life goes well, we assume he's blessing us. And when life doesn't, we assume he's not with us. And that is unfortunately a very immature, inadequate view of God and of our own lives. And Jesus on the cross, citing Psalm 22, is one of the images for us to go, guess what? There is a journey to be had in this place when we hit a wall, when God is silent. Just consider with me the things that, that might cause us to have this struggle, that might cause us to hit a wall of our faith when no longer what we believe is making it work for us. Because what we say is God is for us and God loves us, so life will go well. And it happens in lots of places. For some of us, it happens through a betrayal. Someone we deeply trusted betrays us in our homes, in our families, in our work, in our schools, in our friendships. Sometimes it's a shattered dream. I thought God was all for me. I thought it was going to go well. I was dreaming about all this. It seemed to be moving, and suddenly it was like the rug pulled out for me or the dream shattered. For some of us, it's raising kids. You know, Proverbs says, raise up a child in the way they should go. When they're older, they won't depart with it. And then our kids depart from it. And we go, I, I don't understand. You told me this was a, we treat it like it's an equation. We go through a divorce. Our parents go through a divorce. We lose a job. Someone in our family dies, younger and unexpected. Someone dies when someone else lived, and the one who lived didn't seem to deserve it. The one who died deserved life. A cancer diagnosis. One of the increasing ones today we find is people becoming disillusioned by how unloving we are in the church. We go through an injury or an accident, and our quality of life won't get better. A young couple has been trying for years to get pregnant and can't, and they don't understand why God's not giving them kids. Someone longs for a relationship and it never seems to happen. Or somebody had an experience with the Lord that was really positive and now it's dry. And you're like, where is God? I'm not at all wanting us to be hopeless, but I'm wanting us to be honest that maturation and getting deeper with God when we hit a wall is found through struggle and honesty meaning we begin to talk to God about the feelings and the thoughts we had, about the confusion, about the struggle, and we struggle. We struggle for weeks, we struggle for months. Some of us will even struggle for longer times, even years. And the sad part is, we both don't understand the sacred journey, 
and we think it should be easier, so we walk away from God when it doesn't get easier. Mother Teresa, uh, you know, she journaled a lot and had no intention of us all seeing it, but after she passed, some people put out her words, her private words. And there's a season she goes through, or went through, when it was dry, she didn't hear from God at all, and she was really broken and despairing. And what she writes back to the Lord is, listen, I don't understand where you are. She continued to be honest with it. But she came to a place of surrender going, whether I hear or not, I just want to help other people hear. And if this means I have to suffer like you, I'll take it. But God, help people. And help me to stay faithful even in this mess. Because I don't get it. There was something sacred in that journey for her. And what I want you to know is every Christian has a sacred journey to have that none of us can do for you. And none of us can make easier through a series of simple things that you do to ensure you never have a dark night and you never hit a wall and you never have to take a journey inward that leads you to something deeper with the Lord. But what I can promise you is it does lead us to something better. It's just hard. And it's sacred. And Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is in part an image for us that we will have moments like this that we need God to meet us. And, and I'll tell you, there's two things in the church I ache over this. One is that we don't talk enough about our own hitting walls because many of us have. And we need to be sharing with each other the difficult times. We, we act like what it's supposed to be is, oh, Jesus died and he rose. So guess what? Life's awesome. It always goes well for us. And, and you realize that's not true, don't you? But we don't speak honestly about our struggles. And that is part of what gives people life is we need to hear from others how they walk through it. That will strengthen you, but the other part is this will be your journey. This will be your own road to take that you have to take to grow. And you're welcome. I knew it would excite you. But I want you to know it's sacred. Like there's something profound in it, even in what goes on. And so I don't want to miss for us that Jesus, through his very suffering, is telling us something that we all deeply need, which is you will have despair. There will be times when God is silent, and we will all have those times. And it will be our own place to be honest with God. Where are you? There is a chasm. I don't know what to do. I just don't want to miss. The last thing I want is for us to be little kid Christians that can never get past this. And I wish I could tell you there's a way around it, but there's not. And what I'll tell you is it's a sacred pain. And we all walk through it at different times. And it is one of the biggest heartbreaks for me how many people walk away from Jesus in the church because they hit a wall and they aren't willing to wrestle. They just think this can't be. How could God do this to me? And we walk away. And there's something for all of us in this. Now, I would be remiss, though, not to speak of even the greater truth in this. And so I want you to consider there's a journey inward that God has for us. That there is a place when God is silent and we struggle for us to journey inward. And it is sacred and it is hard, but it is beautiful. But there's also what Jesus came to do by dying on the cross, what it means for him to do this and the weight of that that he experienced when he cites this psalm, when he actually says, where are you, Father? You are silent. Now, the psalmist goes on to literally describe the pain and suffering, and I always find this so fascinating because there was no thought of how Messiah would come or what it would mean, but these give image to what the Messiah is going to go through, what Jesus is on the cross. So it's just really interesting to me poetically and prophetically how this happens. When people ask, oh, tell me how you could do something 500, 1,000 years before 
and describe someone's experience on a cross. And that's what it is here. So let me show you just a couple more excerpts from the psalm. This is now the psalmist describing, I am poured out like water, all my bones are out of joint, my heart is turned to wax, it is melted within me, my mouth is dried like a potsherd, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, you lay me in the dust of death. Now for those not familiar in crucifixion, when you're placed this way, your bones get out of joint, it literally dislocates your body. You're dried up as you begin to suffocate and live through that. This is a description the psalmist had of what Jesus would go through. Can you just let yourself enter the pain of what he's going through? And let me take you to the next part of the passage. It gives more descriptions. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Isn't that crazy? I mean, Jesus had his hands and feet pierced. This is describing it. My bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my, my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments, which happens, we hear, later in the story. Like, this is a picture of the very suffering physically that Jesus goes through. And there's a sense with which we want to enter that because of what we want to understand about what it means for him. But I want to I take it deeper than just his physically suffering but I do want us to recognize it. There's a greater suffering that I believe he's going through, and we call it the weight of sin. And what I mean by sin are all of the things that we do that are destructive and a mess. And and I want to give you two pictures before I give you just a few things about the weight of sin, hopefully to give us a picture to help us. So I would bet many of you, if you've been in the church for any time, have sung the hymn Amazing Grace. It's this beautiful hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. It's a horrible self-description, isn't it? A wretch. It's not like saved a pretty good person who tried hard and did their best. It's a wretch. Now, the man who wrote it was a slave owner and slave trader and had a revelation from God of how horrible and destructive it was and writes this piece when he's freed of that and moves away from it. And here, I'm going to make, this is a harsh statement, and I'm sorry, but I think it's, I'm going to say it for me and for you. I think we look at certain areas of sin and go, that's horrible and wretched. But we tend to look at our own and go, yeah, it's not good, but it's not like that. We we weigh them. And so part of what's difficult for us is to consider the suffering of Jesus carrying the weight of sin because we don't recognize the weight of our own. So let me just illustrate it with one simple thing. Let's say that you have a conversation with someone privately and you see something that you find offensive or wrong and you go and you tell someone else about it. You gossip. Might even be true, but you still are gossiping. You're saying things about the person that are destructive, and in a sense, they unravel who that person is. It might have been one circumstance, but the next person who hears it, they hear it through a lens of something's bad about this person, and they add some more things to it, and they begin to share it, and pretty soon it's spreading through a community, and now this person is vilified and looked horribly just through your words that are literally taking their life away in the community around them. Do we feel the weight of something like that when we do it? Or do we feel justified? So I'm asking you, we're going to enter something more painfully. Let me give you one more picture before we talk about these things of the weight of sin. Uh, uh, Many of you would remember the movie Bruce Almighty. For those of you who are too young, I'll just describe what I need to from it. But there's a movie some years ago where Bruce... uh, this character, basically, God gives him his power, the, God's power to Bruce. And he starts to do all sorts of fun things with it, giving himself great cars, moving cars out of his way, fixing things that are messed up, 
other things I won't describe. But along the way, he begins to hear and gets kind of a bit tormented by the prayers of people. They're like, the volume's too much for him. He's hearing all this, these words, he doesn't know what to do, and God tells him their prayers. So he says, I need to file these. And he asks for a filing system. Pretty soon his whole room is just filled with file cabinets. Can't do anything with that. So the next thing he says, post-it notes. And the next thing you know, the whole room is filled with post-it notes over him and everything else. It's all yellow. And then he goes, I'll get wise about this. And he says, download them. So he has a computer that's set up. And now all the prayers get downloaded. It takes like all night. In the morning, it says 1.5 million prayers. And he begins to answer them, but he can't keep up. And so he says to the Lord, how do you keep up with this? This must be overwhelming, all these prayers. And he said, hey, God says, I only gave you a four-block radius. You have no idea the weight of what there is. You see, what I don't think is we don't carry our own weight, and we don't realize the weight of every sin in every way. And what I want you to understand, what I hope God reveals to us, is that the reality of sin is a huge part of the weight Jesus carries on that cross. There's the physical suffering, but the weight of sin is unbearable and unknowable. And I wanna give you three aspects of sin for us to be a more understanding of what it means that Jesus goes through this misery. The first is what we call responsible guilt. And what it means is sin itself is something that we're responsible for and we're guilty of. So in other words, if you're responsible and you're guilty, you need to do something to make it right. That makes sense, right? And, and this is what I would tell you is even after we follow Christ, many of us, we think we're forgiven or we say it, but we live as if we're trying to make up or do enough good to adjust for the bad. Hey, I'm gonna try and do better. I'm gonna try and do more. What it means with responsible guilt is that Jesus taking on this suffering, Jesus being so overwhelmed and in pain, not just physically, but the weight of sin, is why he turns and says, Father, where are you? You are silent. And we call that atoning sacrifice. It means Jesus died to pay for all this weight, mine, yours, ours collectively, through all of history. There's a second piece of what the weight of sin is for Jesus. And it's this, that you and I are also enslaved by power to this thing of sin. It means that it's not a problem we work our way out of. It means it's a power over us that we can't be free of. We are enslaved to it. So, just curious. Any of you living a sinless life completely these days? Don't show me your hands, because I will question you. You see, we can't try to get our way out of it. But what we don't realize is Jesus' very suffering and death is not just to pay for it, it's to break the power of it. In other words, Jesus actually puts to death sin, he conquers it. He's not only sacrificed, he's victor. That's pretty powerful in the midst of this suffering. It means that God has made a way for there to be new life that he breaks the power, and us learning to live in it is the growth of Christian and moving towards maturity. And then finally, we need to know the weight of sin is personal and communal. We live in a culture that basically says, you're responsible for your sins, you're responsible for yours, I'm responsible for mine, and never the two shall meet. And guess what? That's true, but it's incomplete. We are collectively responsible for sins. In other words, meaning... We have sins in our community and sins in our nation and sins in our world that we as a group are communally responsible for. God judged that way for sin as well. 
And Jesus taking the weight is not just personally, it's communally. Even the story I showed you earlier where we communally infect, we also have patterns and things we do that are outside of what God has. And he dies for us communally as well as singular. And what I want you to see in this is that kind of weight, I hope, gives us gratitude. Like, I'm not trying to do this to shame you and make you, you should feel bad. I am trying to do it to say, I don't think we fully grasp with gratitude the weight of what Jesus goes through. The weight of what he carried and the weight of him even saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why is the Father silent at the moment Jesus is most carrying the weight of all of this? And what I hope that leads us to is gratitude. But I hope for those of us who follow Jesus, we go, man, I gotta be honest, I think I diminish what sin is and it lowers my gratefulness for who Jesus is and what he does. I think maybe I'm glad that I get a get out of jail free card and maybe I'll get free of sin someday and maybe I'll keep saying it's not that much and I'll just keep trying harder. That's not what he died for. Maybe I won't actually face that sin does enslave us and Jesus died to put a death to that to help us live in a new way and I have a new calling that I need to mature and explore And maybe I need to be more grateful both personally and communally for what he did. You see, there's two simple applications for us today. One is, as I said earlier, there is a journey when God's silent and it's sacred. You and I need to mature when we hit the wall, continuing to walk honestly and in struggle. Whether God meets us the way we want or not, we will find deeper communion through the struggle. And then the other, which is so important for all of us, is that Jesus carried sin and his pain actually is our gain. You know, we we regularly talk about this for people that are investigating faith. And what I want to to say to you if you're investigating is, listen, we really believe Jesus took the weight of your sin and my sin and all of it, and that his death actually becomes the way to pay for the guilt that you can't pay and I can't. And we believe his very death is meant and does free the bondage of slavery to give us new freedom from this sin, but it is a journey through it. And we believe it's both personal and communal. And if you're investigating and go, man, we want you to follow him. We want you to know all you have to do is ask him. And then I would say for many of us here, I think we're fairly immature in how we see faith. I don't know how to describe it other than that. It works for us. It's like another asset we have. But God needs to show his end to the bargain to make it worthwhile. I'm going, no, no. God's inviting you to something deeper. To deepen your gratitude and deepen your understanding of your own sin. And then deepen your resolve to walk through the hard times when he is silent. See, I think God's calling us to mature. And I have to tell you, of all the series we've ever done during Lent, this season has been the most profound for me. I don't know if it's just been exploring Jesus' words more deeply or exploring the hard side of faith, but there's something so comforting in knowing God's with us through the things that are unanswerable. Because they're not answerable. But he's found in the midst of the unanswerable, even when he's silent. I'm gonna pray for us, because I believe God has to speak to you. I can't, but... I'm hoping he'll give you some sense of who he is in what we're exploring today. Let me pray. Lord, I pray for any here who have hit a wall. They have an experience right now that 
They're just like, how can I believe and what can I do? And I'm praying you'll meet them in, them, in that. I'm praying in their honesty when they're saying, where are you? Why don't I hear you? When they're honest about how they feel and what they think, that you would help them to navigate that and you would ultimately, the Lord, be with them through it. I pray for an increased trust for them as they walk through it and they wouldn't give up. I pray for those of us who'd settled for a shallow faith that was only when you give us what we wanted, only when life is good, that we'd set that aside and say, I want more. I want all of it. And God, more than anything, I pray that our gratitude for you carrying the weight of sin, for you paying for the guilt, for you breaking the power, and for you loving us personally and together. Oh, God, increase our gratitude that though we deal with the depth of our struggle and our ugliness and our sin, we would deal with it from the vantage point of your depth of your love that reaches deeper and loves more and sacrifices relentlessly for us. Move in our midst. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.